Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you on the wee hours of uh, March 23rd, which is just a um, a couple of days after a uh, video conference, a Zoom conference, which I an online conference which I participated in, which was 100 years after. The Kronstadt Uprising in Russia, which was uh, the last gasp of the classical revolutionary anarchist tradition in Russia. That's what the conference was about. It was entitled Kronstadt as Revolutionary Utopia, 1921 to 2021 and beyond, commemorating the centenary of the Kronstadt Rebellion. Uh, people can check it out online. I believe they're going to have the uh, the audio and the video up on the website, kronstadt2021.wordpress.com. That's K-R-O-N-S-T-A-D-T, Kronstadt. But I'm going to uh, just offer here, as the um, content of this podcast, the brief 10-minute uh, presentation which I gave on my panel Sunday afternoon, Sunday the 21st, panel entitled Kronstadt 1921 and the Social Crises of 2021. My particular presentation on the panel, which you're about to hear, is Syria, Lessons from Kronstadt 1921. Uh, before we get to it, I'm just going to uh, give a little bit of brief background on the Kronstadt Uprising for those of you who are not familiar with it. Kronstadt is actually an island fortress, an, an island garrison, just off of the, uh, the coast of St. Petersburg, Petrograd, which um, was the headquarters of the Russian naval fleet for the Baltic Sea. And it was actually kind of a self-sufficient city. It had its own uh, garden plots and was growing its own food and so on. And the sailors there had a very radical tradition going all the way back to 1906 when they first mutinied against the empire of the czars. And they again mutinied against the uh, provisional Kerensky government after the um, February 1917 revolution. And then finally in March of... 1921, they mutinied against the uh, Soviet government. This was in the context of um, harsh austerity, which is being imposed on the on the workers due to the um, exigencies of uh, the civil war with the white Russians. And uh, in uh, March, in early March of um, 1921, the uh, many of the the workers in Petrograd went on strike. And the sailors at Kronstadt had an insurrection in their support and uh, declared their autonomy from the Soviet authorities and demanded that new Soviets, that is to say new worker councils, be formed throughout Russia, which would include not only the Bolsheviks, but other left tendencies, including the anarchists, and also demanding freedom of speech and of the press and the right of assembly for the workers and the peasants, and for the anarchists and other left socialist parties, the right to organize trade unions independently, etc. They held out for um, 
a couple of weeks. And on March 19th, 1921, the uh, Bolshevik forces took full control of, uh, of Kronstadt after days of fighting in which several hundred were killed. And then uh, many hundreds more were killed, possibly um, as many as 2,000 were killed in summary executions and reprisals by the Bolshevik forces. And, uh, you know, anarchists tend to view this as the episode where uh, the Soviet, uh, well, of course, it wasn't yet the Soviet Union, wouldn't formally become the Soviet Union until 1922, the following year. But uh, where, where the Russian Revolution and the Soviet government uh, went wrong and started steering into authoritarianism and state capitalism. Uh, <clears throat> the Trotsky has put that turning point that when uh, Leon Trotsky was uh, expelled from the Soviet Union after breaking with the, uh, the leadership in um, 1929, and, uh, you know, the real unreconstructed Stalinists out there, of which there continue to be all too many... <laughs> Don't acknowledge that it ever happened at all. So uh, these and what I, uh, what I'm going to you know hopefully demonstrate in the course of my um, my little rant that I gave uh, on the panel is that these uh, you know seemingly esoteric hair splitting debates actually have a lot to do with the contemporary world crisis and how we as progressives react to it. So uh, without further ado, the presentation that I gave. On Sunday, March 21st, at the panel Kronstadt 1921 and the Social Crises of 2021, at the online conference Kronstadt as Revolutionary Utopia 1921 to 2021 and Beyond, my rant entitled <clears throat> Syria Lessons from Kronstadt 1921. <clears throat> okay. I hope I can keep this to uh, the 15 minutes. It's going to be something of a challenge. Uh, but I'm going to begin I'll let by... You know. uh, right. <clears throat> I'm going to begin by uh, quoting the immortal words of Rosa Luxemburg. Order reigns in Warsaw. Order reigns in Paris. Order reigns in Berlin. And so run the reports of the guardians of order every half century from one center of the world's historical struggle to another. And the rejoicing victors do not notice that an order, which must be periodically maintained by bloody butchery, is steadily approaching its historical destiny, its doom. You stupid lackeys, your order is built on sand. So Rosa Luxemburg, in her famous essay of January 1919, Order Reigns in Berlin, she was assassinated the very day after she finished the essay, just as the last sparks of the Spartacist Revolution were being extinguished. Hence, Order Reigns in Berlin. Her other historical references were to the Polish National Uprising of 1831, brutally put down by Russian troops, and the Paris Commune of 1871, which also began at precisely this time of year, 150 years ago, March 18th, 1871. Now, up to then, Rosa Luxemburg was still was writing three years before Kronstadt. Leftist forces around the world had always cheered on popular insurrections. Kronstadt 
marked the first time that leftist forces around the world, with the exception of anarchists and other dissident elements, found themselves on the side of repression rather than rebellion. Today, a century later, this seems more and more to be the actual default position of the left, to the point that I'm really not sure in what sense it is still the left. Now, the Western left was divided on Hungary in 1956 and on Czechoslovakia in 1968, but again, with the exception of some dissident elements, it is not even any longer divided on its support for ultra-reactionary dictators today. Now, partly, this is in response to the neoconservatives with their regime change hubris culminating in the disastrous Iraq invasion, but much of the left today cannot distinguish a genuine revolution from an imperial intrigue and resort to the knee-jerk response of rallying behind dictators in virtually all circumstances. The Western left's response to the Arab Revolution that began in 2011 and really continues today has generally been an abject failure of solidarity, but nowhere more blatant and egregious than in Syria. Ten years ago this week, the Syrian revolution began with peaceful pro-democracy protests. The first demonstrations broke out in the city of Dera after local school children painted a mural depicting scenes and slogans from the recent revolutions in other Arab countries and were detained and brutalized by the police. The Bashar Assad regime responded to the mounting demonstrations with serial massacres. After months of this, the Free Syrian Army emerged, initially as a self-defense militia to protect protesters, but the situation soon escalated to an armed insurgency. The regime lost control of large areas of the country, and local civil resistance committees backed by the FSA seized control. Assad then escalated to levels of violence rarely seen on earth since World War II. The logic of the regime's response has always been to terrorize the populace back into submission, and ultimately to destroy society itself in areas outside regime control. Massive aerial bombardment soon escalated to serial chemical weapons attacks and massive Russian military intervention to back up the regime. The death toll in the war is now estimated over a half million, with over 100,000 of those, the disappeared, who died in the dictatorship's prison gulag. A similar number are still believed to be in detention. It has amounted to a campaign of extermination, according to a 2016 study by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Over 13 million have been displaced, nearly half having fled the country as refugees, more in precarious and impoverished camps within the diminishing enclaves of rebel control. Syria has long been the world's greatest displacement crisis, and the response of the international left has literally been to blame the victims. The consensus position of the American left is now one in support of the Assad regime. Now first, let us dispense with the requisite and knee-jerk disavowal that we inevitably hear. Oh no, we don't support the regime, we just oppose U.S. intervention in Syria. Because that, quite simply, is a lie. 
when you parrot regime propaganda, when you depict the Syrian opposition as monolithically jihadist and deny the existence of a progressive civil resistance, when you cast doubt on Bashar Assad being behind the serial chemical attacks, you are loaning support to the regime and implicitly justifying its massive attacks on civilian populations. This is objectively support of the Assad regime. Now, it began with the sectarian left, the Answer Coalition, led at its core by the poorly named Party for Socialism and Liberation, more aptly dubbed the Party for Fascism and Dictatorship, the International Action Center, People's Power Assemblies, and others. These are all entities which emerged one way or another, either as offshoots or front groups, from the Workers' World Party, whose origins go back to elements of the Trotskyist movement who supported the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, and subsequently started moving back in a pro-Stalinist direction. Today, these groups actually march with portraits of the genocidal dictator Bashar Assad at their hypocritical anti-war rallies. But the poison has spit itself throughout the so-called left at this point. Noam Chomsky, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Democracy Now!, when it has featured such experts as Seymour Hirsch, have all been guilty of this. Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton of the odious Gray Zone rally around any regime that the U.S. ostensibly opposes, most notably that of Bashar Assad. And the crowning irony is that the U.S. doesn't even oppose the Assad regime in more than words, increasingly in few and equivocal words at that. The U.S. provided some aid to the Free Syrian Army early in the war, but has actually restrained rebel forces from using this aid to fight Assad, insisting they only use it to fight ISIS and other jihadist forces, such as the Nusra Front. Biden's recent airstrike on an Iranian base in Syria was among but a small handful of times that the U.S. has bombed forces aligned with the Assad regime, each time to requisite protest from the American left. Meanwhile, there was overwhelming silence from the anti-war forces in the West over Trump's virtual destruction of the city of Raqqa, despite the massive civilian toll, because in that case, the U.S. was fighting ISIS, not the Assad regime. Even the world media barely paid note to the destruction of Raqqa. This despite the fact that the Assad regime has certainly killed far more Syrians than has ISIS. And Assadist forces have actually re-entered Raqqa for the first time since 2013, following the city's U.S.-directed liberation four years ago. So the Pentagon like these anti-war fools, is objectively on the side of the Assad regime. Worse, very recent history is going right down the Orwellian memory hole. Most leftists think the Syrian revolution was and is CIA astroturf and or jihadist extremism. And even the anarchist dissidents in the West Supporters of the Rojava Autonomous Zone in Syria's northeast, who were inspired by the Kurdish revolutionaries, drawing from the anarchist and communalist ideas of Murray Bookchin, even they know nothing about the similar ideas 
of Syria's own Omar Aziz, the Damascus-based anarchist theorist who was an early influence on the general Arab Syrian revolution. He helped shape the model of council-based radical democracy, people seizing power from below in local coordination committees, as they were called. He was, of course, detained and died in Assad's prisons in 2012. And here I must give big kudos to my Syrian friend and comrade, Leila al-Shami, for keeping the legacy of Omar Aziz alive. Very important work. I urge people to Google up her most uh, recent article for a publication called The Fumnabulist, entitled Building Alternative Futures in the Present, the Case of Serious Communes. But um, most leftists in the West have never even heard the name of Omar Aziz. Now, Russia, in 1921, was still a revolutionary state, although even there, the capitalist restoration program of Lenin's new economic policy had a lot to do with the context for the Kronstadt uprising. But Assad's Syria was and is by no means an anti-capitalist or revolutionary state, despite its bandying about of the word socialist in Hitlerian manner. Quite to the contrary, it is a deeply reactionary, indeed fascistic and kleptocratic state, and thoroughly a part of the world order that Rosa Luxemburg prophesied was built on sand. That self-identified leftists around the world are rallying to the defense of this regime is the most shameful betrayal imaginable. Thank you. Okay, many thanks, Bill. Okay, once again, you've been listening to uh, my rant entitled Syria, Lessons from Kronstadt 1921. At the panel, Kronstadt 1921 and the Social Crises of 2021. At the online conference, Kronstadt as Revolutionary Utopia, 1921 to 2021 and beyond. A big shout out to the organizers of the conference, particularly my bud, Javier Sethnes, who was the moderator of the panel. Uh, the other, What the other panelists had to say was also really, really interesting and informative. I urge people to check it out online. Once again, that's kronstadt2021.wordpress.com. Okay, this has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join The Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.